Welcome to the Dogwood Podcast, a presentation of Dogwood Church. For more information, visit dogwood.church. We hope you enjoy the message. Good morning again to you. He said, my name is John Warnock. I am one of the pastors on staff here. It's good to be here with you this morning. Um, how many of you like to wait for things? Anybody? And I don't mean the grocery line store game that we all play when we get there and we're looking at the lines and we're ready to check out and we're going, okay, I'm going to go to the short one and it ended up taking like 10 times longer. Or the, the line at the bank when we're going through the drive through there. I don't mean those kinds of waiting things. I mean like waiting for something good like Christmas morning. Anybody like waiting for that? I mean, that anticipation builds a little bit. I remember when I was a senior in high school, uh, my parents decided to put out some of the gifts early. And so it's probably three weeks before Christmas, and, and I go downstairs and I, and, I, and I see a gift that looked a lot like this, and it had my name on it. Well, I had gotten pretty good, as some of you probably are, pretty good at being able to guess gifts, right? I mean, you'd go down there and you'd shake it a little bit, you'd feel it and feel if there's any soft spots you know, or any kind of any kind of um, things that might give away what's on the inside. Because I also knew my parents were pretty good about getting good gifts. And they were listening to some of the things that we and my sister would talk about or talk about with their friends. And they would, they would generally do a very, very good job of, of getting those. So, so Christmas felt like it got further and further away because I couldn't figure out what this gift was. It had a little weight to it, not too much, but for the size package it was, it just, it just felt odd. And so each morning... As I was getting ready for school, I'd eat, eat breakfast, watch a little sports center, and I'd go over to the tree, and I'd go to the package, and I'd pick it up, and I'd examine it. And I'd feel it, and shake it, and I couldn't figure out what it was. So Christmas Eve comes along, and we had this tradition in my family that we got to open a package on Christmas Eve. And this was the package that I wanted to open. My parents were like, you know, you should probably wait for that one until the next morning. I was like, seriously? So that night was one of the longest nights of my life. Because I wanted to know what was in the package. Y'all been there? That's, that's kind of like the good kind of waiting, right? So Christmas morning happens. Now, when I was real young, I slept through most of Christmas morning. But when I got older and realized what was going on, then I was the first one up. I was getting people up because I was like, let's go do the present thing. Right? So we get down there. It's the first present that I open. I, get, I pick it, and I start ripping into the paper. I, you know, none of the saving stuff. None of, not even trying to save the bow, although I just did on that one. And I open it up, and I start peeling through the, the paper that's in there. And I'm getting down to the present. I'm just, man, the tension's building. I'm so excited. And I pull out a stapler. And on the inside, my brain is telling, face, smile. Act like you're happy about the stapler, right? Because for some reason, my parents thought that this would be an awesome Christmas gift for a senior in high school. Um, You know, in, in one way, I guess I'm thankful for it because it's one of the gifts that I do remember from that. I don't remember anything else I got, but I remember this, right? Now, contrast that just a little bit. When we were waiting for our firstborn son to be born, I can remember Lindsay telling me that she was pregnant and that we knew that, that sometime in the not-too-distant future that we would have a child. And then I remember going to the... Uh, to the doctor, and there's the ultrasound that happens, and you get to hear the heartbeat. I remember going back a few weeks later and getting to see on the ultrasound, you know, my son there, and thinking, oh my gosh, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to be a dad to a son. And it's going to be great. And as, as things get a little closer, I remember laying down at night and praying, 
God, please, let everything go well with this pregnancy. Let everything go well with the delivery. Um, and so one night, uh, it's, it's relatively late uh, in the evening, we lay down and, you know, Lindsay's a little uncomfortable. She's very pregnant at this point. And uh, we lay there and uh, she goes, you know, I think this might be the time. And I went, you mean like the time? She's like, yeah. So we get in the car and we, it's like a 30-minute drive to the hospital. And that, that drive felt like it took forever to get there. We get there late uh, at, at night, middle of the morning kind of a thing. And it's hours and hours and hours of hard labor. And I'm just watching. She's struggling, praying for her, but, but I'm just watching. I can't wait. I remember when, when Caleb comes into the world, right? And you get to hold him for the first time. And I remember them putting the little, the little uh, heart-shaped sticker on him that's the thermometer thing. And they put him under the lamp as they're doing whatever it is they do to him under the lamp. Um, and I remember looking at him thinking, oh my goodness, I can't believe. What a great gift. But you know what's even better than that gift? The 14 years of getting to be his dad so far. That, I mean, that was incredible joy. I had no idea what was in store for me that day. And it's gotten better and better and better. Incredible joy of being a dad. Push pause on those two stories for just a moment. We come to a passage today in our walk through the Gospels. Some of you may know, some of you may not. We are, we're doing a chronological walk through the Gospels. What that means is, is we're taking um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, putting them together in a timeline, and we're, and we're teaching through the Gospels, not like Matthew all the way from chapter 1 to the end, and Mark all the way chapter 1 to the end, but put them in a chronological order and, and teaching through the history and the stories and the teachings of Jesus and what He says. And so we come to a spot where Jesus says the time has come. This is found in particular in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. If you have your Bible turned there, uh, with me. We're going to be there uh, the whole morning. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 say this. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. These two short verses are packed with all kinds of great information, teaching for us to help us to know God more and to love Him more. So before we unpack those, I want to pray for us one more time this morning. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank You for the time this morning that You you have put together for us to study Your Word. God, as we dig through this passage of Scripture, God, help us to hear You. Help us to see You more clearly. And may these words cause us to love You more deeply. May it be a time where those of us who are already Your followers, may it be a time where our Faith is strengthened. Lord, I want to pray for those in this room who don't yet know who you are. Maybe they're here checking things out, but God, I pray that you would speak to their hearts this morning. Draw them close to you. Help them to know who you are. Lord, for all of us, I pray that you help us to worship you with our soul and our mind and our heart. In other words, God, all that we are. God, we love you because you love us. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So Mark chapter 1, verse 14 starts with this. It says, after John was put into prison. Now who's John? This is John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. He was the one proclaiming that the Messiah is coming. Remember, we've talked about that some over the last few weeks. Um, and, and John was being handed over to be put into prison. His earthly ministry is ending. Jesus' earthly ministry is now officially beginning. 
And one day, Jesus is also going to be, he's going to be handed over to be put to death. Where John lost his life, he was handed over to be put in prison. And again, his ministry ends. Jesus' ministry officially begins. The next little part of that verse says, Jesus went into Galilee. You might want to know what Galilee is. Very basically, it's one of the three major provinces in Palestine. It was the northernmost province. It was a beautiful place, lakes, forests, mountains. And it was the place where most of Jesus' recorded earthly ministry happened. The verse goes on and says, what was Jesus doing? He was proclaiming the good news of God. This good news is the gospel. It's, that, it's this news of bringing forgiveness and restoration, restoring mankind to God in a right relationship. And then Jesus says these words in verse 15. The time has come. A critical moment in the history of the world. You see, the Jewish people, they had been waiting for the Messiah, longing for this Messiah to come. The Jewish people were a religious culture. They knew. They knew what the Old Testament taught. I mean, their, their culture was built around it. Their festivals that they celebrated was all based on the teachings of what we now call the Old Testament. People... People everywhere were, were, were somewhat educated about religion. And they knew that one day there was a coming Messiah. They were waiting with anticipation, longing for that day to come. Dreaming even about what that day was going to look like for them. Expecting it. Thinking, how is life going to be different when the Messiah actually gets here? Now, many of them, if not most of them, misunderstood the coming of the Messiah. They, they misunderstood what it would mean. Many of them thought that it was going to be a political leader or a military type leader, kind of like William Wallace and Braveheart. It's kind of what they were thinking, many of them. They thought, they thought that they were going to get someone who was going to free them politically. They saw Jesus really more as that stapler kind of gift. They were a little disappointed. And that's the reason why the crowds could turn on Jesus so quickly. You remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Palm Sunday. We talked about how as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, what happened? People were celebrating Him. They were taking their, their coats off and laying it on the ground for Jesus' donkey to walk over. They were absolutely celebrating Him. And then just a few days later, what was happening? Those same very crowds were doing what? They were shouting, crucify Him. We would rather have the criminal Barabbas released. Instead of this innocent man, Jesus. Crowds turned on him. They thought, they thought it was kind of like that stapler gift. They were disappointed. But some, some understood what the Messiah was there to truly do. Which was to proclaim the good news and make it so that all people could be free from their sins. Not just to be free from political oppression. Not just free from military oppression. But this time had come. That was even better than what they were longing for. I didn't understand. Remember, I didn't understand the joy that my son would bring and the joy that being a dad would bring. So some of these people, while they understood that Messiah, the true reason why he was there, it was only going to get better as they got even more understanding of what Jesus was there to do. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says this, But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son. What do we learn about Jesus saying the time had come? What do we learn about Galatians chapter 4? It's this, is that God's timing is always right. It's always right. 
Jesus, as he begins his earthly ministry, proclaims the time has come. He is announcing to everyone the wait is over. And this wait would be worth it for those that would listen and understand. Because his gift was going to be better than anybody could possibly comprehend. Now, why are his words so important? Why is his announcing that the time has come so important? Well, again, think back. Imagine yourself a Jewish person growing up then. You've heard all of this your whole life that one day there was going to be the Messiah. And we hear these words, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. There would have been joy in your heart over that announcement as you heard it. You would have been ecstatic. You would have loved it. The wait would have been worth it. Kind of like a number of years ago, and this is on a much smaller scale, but a, but a number of years ago, I was at a conference out at a, at a church in Southern California. And uh, after the con- conference was over, my friend who I was at the conference with, he was going to stay a few days later. His wife was going to meet him there. So he dropped me off at the airport about 6.30 in the morning. I go, I get in line at the little ticketing, aid, ticketing area um, so that I could get my official ticket. We didn't have smartphones then. To have our ticket on there. And I can tell that there's commotion going on among the airline, amongst the airline employees. And I hear words like this. Do we tell these people just to go home? We don't know how long the wait is going to be. But I'm going, all right, I don't have home to be. Home for me is in Georgia. So give me my ticket. I'll go sit by the gate and see what happens. So get my ticket, go through security, get to the gate. A gate agent comes out and says, you know what? Your, your plane has been delayed. We will be back with you in about 20 or 30 minutes. Two or three hours later, they finally come out and say, you know what, your plane is still delayed. We'll be back with you in another two or three hours. So we sit there. Excuse me, they said 20 or 30 minutes, but it was another two or three hours for them to come back and give us another announcement. And at that announcement, they said, we're going to be getting you guys some meal vouchers because it's going to be a little while. And everybody just kind of looks at each other like, well, what does that mean? I mean, can we, can we go somewhere else? Is it a little while like two hours? Is it 10 hours? We just didn't know. Well, finally, about 8 o'clock that night, we finally get to get on that plane. And when we get on the plane, we start asking questions to the flight attendants. Well, what was going on? And so they kind of they spill the beans a little bit and tell us what happened. Well, apparently what happened was this plane had some mechanical trouble. This airline was a smaller airline that doesn't exist any longer, and they didn't have mechanics in L.A. So they had to fly in mechanics from another city, which took time to get there. The mechanics had to work on the plane. That took time. After the plane was fixed, they didn't want to put people up in the plane, like passengers up in the plane, until they knew that it actually was really fixed and they had to take the plane on like a joyride to make sure that it worked. Right? You know when I heard that? I was okay with the fact that I had to wait my 12 or 13 hours in the L.A. airport. I was good. I was glad they didn't send me on a plane that was broken. Right? The wait was worth it. I was okay at that point. There was joy that I was getting to go home and I probably wasn't going to die. Right? Jesus then speaks these words. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe. It's, incredible. it's chalked full of meaning. The kingdom of God, what does this mean? Well, this phrase is the same phrase that is used throughout the New Testament as the kingdom of heaven. So when you see the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven, they basically mean the same thing. And the New Testament authors would, would use them interchangeably. The phrase is used over 80 times throughout the New Testament, meaning it's got to be important if it's used that much. Scripture never clearly defines exactly what the kingdom of heaven is. In other words, it doesn't give us one verse to look to that says the kingdom of God is this, right? 
But with Jesus using it, the New Testament authors using it, they, would, they were assuming that we would know what it means. Again, imagine yourself growing up Jewish in Galilee. Your parents and your teachers, they told you about the coming Messiah and God's reign. You would have been waiting. The future that you were longing for was finally there. It wasn't a, just a flickering hope any longer. This announcement by Jesus would have awakened something in your mind and in your soul and filled you with all kinds of good images of hope. How do you and I understand this kingdom of God phrase then? Well, let me ask you to do something for a second. Close your eyes. I promise nothing weird is going to happen to you. Close your eyes. And I want you to get a picture in your mind of what you think a kingdom looks like. If you could come up with an image of a kingdom. All right, you've got about three seconds to come up with your image. Now open your eyes and look on the screens. Most of us probably thought of something that looks like, not me, um, a castle maybe? Most of us, not coming up on the screen. You didn't think of me when you thought of kingdom, did you? There it is, right there. Most of us probably had some kind of image like this for us in our mind when we thought of kingdom. The kingdom of God is not just a walled fortress city where the people of God get to go live and be protected from all of its evil in the world. The kingdom of God is this instead. It is the kingly rule of God in the lives of people. The kingdom of God is the kingly rule of God in the lives of people. It refers to the recognition of the authority of God rather than a specific geographical area. The kingdom of God begins with the ministry of Jesus. And while it begins with His earthly ministry, it won't be complete until His return. With His earthly ministry, God certainly brought grace and brought justice Jesus was and is here to make things right in the world. That's the reason why Jesus cared for the poor. It's the reason why He cared for the oppressed. And He healed people. He was caring for people. He was bringing hope to the world. But more than that, He was here to vanquish evil and death. And to make it so that people could know God again. And that is why we as followers of Christ, when one of our friends who's a follower of Christ dies... It's the reason why we can sing and we can say, Oh death, where is your sting? Because Jesus solved that for us. But you might say, if we were sitting in a coffee shop talking right now, you'd say, but John, there's still evil. There's still suffering in the world. And I would say, yes, you're right. There is still evil and suffering in the world. And I think the best way to help us understand this kingdom of God is to go back to our days of World War II. I didn't live then, but I studied World War II in, in, in history. There's two big, multiple big events, but two big events in, in World War II that I want to highlight for you. One is D-Day. D-Day is when the Allies, they kind of bring everything, all of their resources together because they realize that they've got to start retaking the continent of Europe out of control of the German um, oppression, right? And so the Allies mount this huge offensive. Storm the beaches of Normandy and Omaha and a couple other places. They send planes over and they, they drop paratroopers back there. And that day succeeded. The Allies began the process of taking back Europe. And historians actually now look back and say, that's really when World War II began to end. It ended then, in a lot of ways. Now there's another day, which was the end of World War II, at least on the European side of things, right? When Germany officially surrendered. What's that day called? V-Day. Victory Day, right? Now, there's a lot that happened between D-Day and Victory Day, right? 
a lot that had, there were still lives that, that were lost. There were still battles that had to be fought. But the war began to end on D-Day, and it was officially over at V-Day. Well, think of Jesus and the kingdom of God as this, is when He came to earth, and He lived, and He died on the cross, that's D-Day. That's God saying, you know what? Evil one, you're not going to win this on this world with these people. We're going to vanquish evil and we're going to get rid of all of that. And the process started then. And one day Jesus is going to return and He is going to complete that process. And it is going to be awesome and He is going to restore things fully. It's the reason why theologians and writers will say the kingdom of God is here and now, in other words, D-Day, and not yet. In other words, the coming of Christ again. Victory day for us. Jesus then says, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe this good news. Repent and believe. Jesus is giving you and I instructions on how one gets to be a part of the kingdom of God. He's not just saying, hey everybody, listen, the kingdom of God is nearby. He's saying, if you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, you know what you have to do? You repent and you believe. So let's unpack what that means to repent. To repent means to recognize that you're heading in the wrong direction. And then it means that you turn and go in a completely opposite different direction. Put bluntly, in the terms of how we're saying it, it means that on the inside, I am a flawed sinner. And I am absolutely in need of a Savior named Jesus Christ. Now to help us to understand repentance a little bit more, I want to give you really two broad categories here. One, we're going to go through some obstacles of repentance, and then I want to give you some essentials to repentance. So first, let's look at some of the obstacles of why is it hard for us to grasp repentance. Well, the first is this. Some of us wince. We recoil at that word just a little bit because of the way people have used it in the past to bring about hatred and um, beating other people up. Jesus' call to repent, though, was not just to reprimand us, but it was an invitation to switch alliances. Think back to when you were a kid. Now, when I was a kid, we had dirt-clawed wars, right? Some of us would, you know, would throw dirt at each other. And I don't know why we did that, but we did that. We thought it was fun. Ladies, I don't know what you did when you had teams, but if you had teams of something, you did something. Have you ever been on the losing end of a terrible team? And I was. I remember a number of times getting to switch teams. How cool was it when you were on the like the sorry team, the one that was getting the mess beat out of them all the time, and then you got to switch to the good time, good team? Anybody ever get a chance to do that? Maybe not in Dirt Clawed Wars, because your parents didn't let you do that, but something else. Man, it's way better to be on the winning team, isn't it? And I remember saying, look, kids, let me be on your team. I'll give you Capri Suns after we're all done with this, right? Jesus' invitation to us to repent isn't to beat us up. It's to say, look, you can switch alliances. You can be on the winning team. But there's a second obstacle. It's this, is that we are prideful people. Let me say, I'm a prideful person. We don't like for anybody to tell us that we're wrong, do we? I hate being wrong. I hate it. can't stand being wrong. A couple of weeks ago, or a couple months ago actually, Lindsay and I started the process of refinancing our mortgage from a 30-year loan to a 20-year loan. Went through that whole process, got it done, and as it was done, my mom's in the car with us, we're talking about how great it is to have a 20-year loan, and I say something along the lines of, I'm so thankful that we get to be in a 20-year loan now 
Actually, I wish my loan had paid off, right? But, but I'm thankful that I was in a 20-year loan because I had looked at the amortization schedules and saw how much money I would save by doing 20 years instead of 30. Right? And she goes, what are you talking about? Our last house, we had a 20-year loan. And I was like, no, we didn't. No, we didn't have a 20-year loan. I'm so sure of it, I'll bet you 1,000 hours of back, back rubs. I'm so sure that we didn't have this that I would cut my right arm off. And she's like, no, seriously, we did. But maybe you're right since you're so adamant about the fact that you'd give me a 1,000 hours of back rubs over this. So we get home, and she's like, why don't you go look up in the papers and see? So we both go up there and dig out the papers to the old loan that we had. And I look at the front page. And then I look at the second page. And I hand her the front page and the second page. And I'm trying to get a whole bunch of papers her way so that she doesn't see that, yes, indeed, we really did a long time ago have a 20-year note. I hate, look, we were having fun with that. Thankfully, just so you know, I didn't actually bet it, so I don't have to give the 1,000 hours of back rubs because that would take forever. Um, But I hated being wrong, even on something silly like that where we were just having fun with one another. Why is that? Because I'm prideful, right? We have pride. It gets in our way. There's another aspect of pride that's an obstacle for us, and this is under the same obstacle in case you're taking notes, is the fact that we typically blame other people when we do something wrong, right? When I do something wrong, I'm like, hey, it's somebody else's fault. Get caught for speeding. Everybody else was doing it, so I was going that fast too, right? Adam blamed Eve. Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. It's just what we do. We're prideful people. We struggle with none of us like to be wrong, and we all like to blame other people. But there's another obstacle. It's this, is that our culture has a very shallow view of sin. Our culture, we live in a day and time, and it may have been like this hundreds of years ago, I don't think so, but but we live in a day and time at least where, where our culture is, is it has a shallow view of sin. I'm reading a book called Onward by Russell Moore. Russell Moore is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Great author, great writer, great person that helps think through how do you be a Christian in the culture we live in today? How do we sur- not just survive, but how do we make an impact? And that's what this book is all about. I'd encourage you to read it if if you've not already read it before, again, it's called Onward. But anyway, he tells the story of, of someone that he was getting to meet. The way he describes this person was a liberal feminist community leader. Right? He doesn't say who it is. And he talks about that they were having a very good civil conversation, which is a side note, folks. When we are going to talk to people about culture and we're going to have conversations with people, that's what we do. We should have conversations. We shouldn't go hold signs out telling how much God hates people. Back to our story here, Russell's talking about his, his interaction with this lady. And this lady, while they have a good conversation, this lady laughs at him just a little bit for holding to some of the, what I'll call the Christian ethic. And it's not, it's what he was describing in there was like how people should live. And it's not just the Christian ethic. I mean, the major world religions teach very similar moral living. Judaism does. Islam teaches some of the same moral living. And, and she even said to him, because they started talking about some of the sexual ethic in the day. And she said to him, she said, listen, Russell, I've never even met anybody who thinks like you that, that sex is, should only be for a married man and a married woman that are married together, and that's it. She said, I've never even met anybody that thinks that. She said, our world is changing. And our culture is impacting us. There's a whole other sermon of how we deal with that later on, Right? But that is something that impacts us. And so we have to at least acknowledge it. But our culture also provides another obstacle for us, and it's this. 
is that we have a shallow view of repentance. And I don't think necessarily that we've tried to get there. I think it's, it's probably come from good motives. And I think part of where it comes from is we teach our kids when they mess up or they break something, we tell them to, to say they're sorry, right? Like that's going to fix everything. But unless we also then take the time to explain to them the damage that was done, whatever it was, all we're teaching them is say you're sorry and everything's going to be okay. Sometimes you have to help them understand why they're saying that they're sorry, right? Now, there's essentials to repentance. Those are some obstacles that we've got to overcome. We have to acknowledge them and overcome them. There's some essentials that I want you to know as well. There's seven of them. Again, you can take some notes if you want as you're going through here. Um, These will come up on the screen, I believe. Uh, The first essential is this, is recognize our sin. Luke chapter 15, verse 17. Some of these essentials are going to come from a story from the Bible that Jesus taught called the prodigal son. I don't have time this morning to tell you all about that story, but in a nutshell, here's what happened. A, A younger son goes to his dad and says, Dad, I wish you were dead. Please give me my inheritance so that I can go off and live on my own. All right? Dad does that. I'm not really sure why the dad did it, but he did. Son goes off, lives on his own, and he squanders all of his wealth on on crazy stuff. And then in verse 17, Jesus is telling the story, and the son says, thinks this. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? Luke seven Luke verse 15, verse 17. When he came to his senses. He recognized that he had done something wrong. That's this, one of the essentials of repentance. The second essential is that we would actually have sorrow over our sin. Psalm chapter 38, verse 18 says, I confess my iniquity. I am troubled over my sin. There's a third essential, which is confession of sin. Luke chapter 15, verse 18. Again, back to the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son goes back to his dad and he says, Father, Father, I've sinned against you. We confess it. So in other words, we go to our Heavenly Father and we say, Father God, we've sinned. I've sinned against you. But there's a fourth essential. And it's, it's a feeling of shame over our sin. Luke, verse 15, Luke chapter 15, verse 21, he, the, the younger son says to his father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He feels so terrible about it. I'm no longer even worthy to be called your son. Which leads us to the fifth essential, which is hatred of our sin. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 31 says, You will loathe yourselves for your sin and detestable practices. Now, some of you guys over those last two ones, you're, you're kind of bristling a little bit. Like, what? Feel shame? What? Hate my sin? I mean, everybody gets a trophy, right? No, not everybody should get a trophy. I, mean, I know that's our culture. But we should feel shame and hatred over our sin. Let me frame it for you this way. If you think of, let me actually let me frame it for you so I'm talking about myself, not you. All right? My sin, John Warnock's sin, is the sin that put Jesus on the cross. Because of my sin, Jesus had to go through the terrible death that he did. He had to go through God the Father turning on turning his back on him because of my sin being placed on his shoulders. When I think of my sin that way and frame it that way, you know what? I feel terrible over my sin. I feel shame over my sin. And I hate my sin because of what it caused God to go through. There's another essential. Is that we turn from our sin and turn towards God. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. Let me read this for you out of the Bible. God is speaking. He says, As surely 
As I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. And in the New Testament, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. We turn from our sin and turn towards God. And then what do we do? That leads us to the seventh essential, which is receive God's forgiveness. Receive God's forgiveness. Psalm chapter 51, verse 2. Wash away all of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. All of these verses should bring joy and hope because we've been waiting for this gift and it will be better than you can imagine. Jesus says repenting is part of it, but He says also what we're supposed to do is to believe. We repent and we believe. This believing that Jesus is talking about is not just an acknowledgement of the truth of Scripture or doctrine or creeds. I like the way that Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade, a great ministry that has helped thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people around the world come to know Christ. I like the way he talks about belief. He says it consists of our intellect, our emotions, and our will. In other words, he's painting a picture of the whole person. All of us, all of who we are, believes in what Jesus did. It is belief in the following. It is belief that Jesus is the Son of God. It is a belief that He died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin, for my sin, and that He rose from the dead so that we could be reconnected to Him. Romans chapter 10 describes it as believing with all of your heart, implying all of you. Pastor Keith has said over the years that it is betting your life, it is betting the farm on what Jesus said and did. He also says, and I love the way he describes it, it's putting your active faith and trust in Jesus. It's one thing to believe planes can fly, those tubes of metal that weigh a lot. It's another thing to actually get your body on that plane and fly through the air with it, right? Putting our active faith in Jesus is putting all of our faith in Him and Him alone. We repent and we believe because the kingdom of God is near. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment in an attitude of prayer. As you're doing that, I'm going to invite the band to go ahead and come back up on stage. I want to ask you a question that I'd like for you to think about. The question is this, have you repented and believed? Have you as an individual, not because your grandma, not because your mom has, not because your dad, but have you repented and you believed? Spend just a few moments asking God to search you and to, to let you know, have you actually done this? Have you repented? I think those, those if, if you need what repentance looks like, again, those essentials, they're going to come back up on the screen if you didn't write them down. Walk through those. Ask God to search your heart and say, God, have I done those things? If not, then I beg you, this morning, repent and believe. Take these next few moments. Pray, do business with God, and then I'll close our prayer time out in just a moment. Let's pray.
still in an attitude of prayer, if this morning you realize you've never repented of your sin and believed in and on Jesus, and, and, and as we were praying and you spent that time saying, God, I need you. I'm doing that right now. If that's you, then let us know about it. On your communication card that Pastor Keith spoke of at the beginning of the service, there, if you turn it over on the back side, there's a box that you can check that says, today I'm becoming a follower of Jesus. Our church exists to help people get to know Him, to come to know Him, and to grow in their walk with Him. You'll let us know about it. We're going to send you some material. We'll get in contact with you. And we will help you on that journey of loving God and following Him all of your life. Lord Jesus, thanks so much for this morning. God, we thank You for Your gift of salvation that You give. We thank You for the price that You had to pay and that You make it possible for us to repent of our sin and to believe in You. And it's in Your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dogwood Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the message. For more information and other sermons, visit dogwood.church. If you'd like to give to Dogwood Church, you can use your smartphone and text keyword dogwood to 779-77 or click the Give link online. You can now download the Dogwood Church app for Apple and Android devices for podcast, video, and more.